Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Now, if you would, please take out your copy of the Word of God and turn in it in the New Testament to the book of Acts and chapter number 27. Acts chapter 27. You don't happen to have a, a Bible with you. There's one under a chair in front of you, and you could grab that Bible and turn in the back part to page 116, and you would be at Acts chapter 27. Now, I graduated from high school in 1969. Two years before that, in 1967, a popular singing group named Sonny and Cher came out with a song. Now, no, two, four years after 1967, they actually had a TV show, and it was a big show in America, a variety show. But in 1967, they released a song, and the title of the song was The Beat Goes On. And I want to share with you some of the lyrics of that song. It went like this. The Charleston was once the rage, uh-huh. History has turned the page, uh-huh. The miniskirts, the current thing, Teeny Bopper is our newborn king. The beat goes on, the beat goes on. And then after that, immediately after that, are some of the deepest, most moving lyrics ever in pop history. La-dee-da-dee-dee, la-dee-da-dee-da. Now, aren't you so glad you're here today or you would have missed those magical words? But you know what? I think... There's some significance in that song for us. The key phrase that just jumps out at me that as I was studying through this reminded me was that little phrase, the beat goes on. I don't know if you've ever noticed it or not, but when you come to the book of Acts, there is no ending. Uh, there is no conclusion. Why is that? Because when it comes to the life of the church, the beat goes on. The story is still being written. It was written continually long after Paul was gone, and it's still being written today, and it'll be written long after Bruce is gone, and even when Mark is gone and when you are gone. The beat goes on. Now, we are, are, are concluding our, our study of Acts, which we've entitled Seeds. We had actually planned to do this the first Sunday of December, but I became ill. I got bronchitis, and I couldn't speak. And so in God's providence, we've now shifted it to today, and we're glad you're here. And I think this is a great message for our entering into a new year. But before we actually look at all these final verses, I want to remind us that I believe God has some lessons for us from Acts. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11, and it's re referring back to the Old Testament, it says this, these things happened to them as an example and were written for our instruction. That is true of what happened in the Old Testament. That is also true of what happened in the New Testament. And so it's important for us to see as we approach the Scriptures that these things happen to them as an example for us. And they have been written for our instruction. So what we want to do is look at two things today. We want to, first of all, look at Paul's shipwreck experience in chapter number 27. And then we're going to look at two verses in chapter 28 where we see Paul sharing the gospel, a calling that he had and a calling that I have and a calling that you have. So that's all we're going to look at today. 
And we're going to begin with Paul's shipwreck experience in chapter number 27. Now, if you've been with us in our study of the book of Acts, you will know that as we have watched the early church unfolding in the book of Acts, they have been experiencing adversity and difficulty. We have seen uh, the, the church being... An, People who are followers of Christ being arrested. We have seen beatings. We've seen the execution of James and Stephen. We have seen the persecution of Saul, who would later become Paul. We have seen an adverse political climate arise that forced the church to scatter out from Jerusalem. We've seen them experiencing a famine. They couldn't find food to eat. We've seen Paul being driven out of cities, We've seen him being stoned. We've seen him being beaten up. We've seen him undergo four trials. We've seen him face a death plot. And now as we come to chapter 27, we see Paul involved in a shipwreck. Now all of that should explode the myth that when an individual seeks to follow Jesus Christ and to follow God's will, that everything in his life or her life will be smooth. That's not the story that we see in the book of Acts. You might remember how when Paul went back to some of the churches that he had founded, he went back with this message, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That's Acts 14, 22. And so it's important that we remember that. It's an example for us. Now as we come to chapter 27, it is the longest of what's called a we section of the book. That's where Luke is actually present at the events and he's recording them. And it's a dramatic voyage and a dramatic shipwreck that we're going to see. And as Dr. Luke is recording it, we're going to see incredible detail that he gives us. He talks a lot about specific uh, nautical conditions and nautical practices. And there's this intriguing interaction that we are privy to an interaction between uh, Paul and the prisoners that are on the ship and the soldiers that are there to guard the prisoners, and the sailors who are there to sail the ship. And so we have firsthand information being given to us. Now, as we look at this shipwreck chapter of Paul's experience in the shipwreck, I've divided it into three parts. First of all, we have the trip starts in verses 1 to 13. Then we have the storm attacks in verses 14 to 38. And then we have the shipwreck occurs in verses 39 to 44. Now, as we move through this, I just want you to be observing because we're going to find and discover four truths that Paul stood firm on in the midst of the storm that he was experiencing. Four truths that he had a strong grip on. We will observe them as we go through. So let's begin by looking how the trip starts in the first 13 verses. Now, the backdrop of what's happening in chapter 27 really goes back to chapter 25 and verse 12 when Paul legally appealed to Caesar, his case. He appealed to the imperial court in Rome. And so they had to get him to Rome. So in chapter 27, verse 1, it says that they set sail for Italy. Now, when we calculate all of this, we, we know that it was about mid-August when they were leaving the land of Israel and heading for Italy. And if you look at verse 1, it says that they were going to sail for Italy, and they proceeded to deliver Paul, and here's an interesting phrase, and some other prisoners. In Greek, that word for other means 
prisoners who were different from Paul, a different kind of prisoners. And likely these other prisoners who were going with Paul were probably some pretty seedy individuals. Uh, Some of them, no doubt, destined to become human snacks for the lions in the Roman games. Probably some of them, big, rough, tough dudes who would be potential gladiators who would duel to the death in Rome. But they were a different type of person from Paul. And then we noticed there was a centurion who was in control of the soldiers, and his name was Julius. So we have this guy who's in charge of the soldiers who are watching the prisoners on the ship to Rome and to Italy. And in verse 2, it says, we put out to sail. And that's including Paul. Well, who's the we? Well, that's Paul. That's also Luke. He's writing all of this. And it's also another guy by the name of Aristarchus. We learn Aristarchus was involved. So Luke was apparently, as far as we know, the personal physician who was with Paul. Aristarchus was his personal attendant. In fact, if you track your way through the book of Acts in the New Testament, we see Aristarchus showing up everywhere Paul is. Uh, We see him in chapter 19 of Acts. He's with Paul at Ephesus. In chapter 20, Aristarchus is with Paul on his journey to Jerusalem. In Colossians chapter 4 and verse 10, when Paul is in prison and he's writing a letter to those in Colossae, he says, Aristarchus is here, my fellow prisoner. I like to call Aristarchus Paul's burden-sharing teammate. When Paul had a burden, Aristarchus was there. When there was trouble, Aristarchus was there. And you know, you know, in the church of Jesus Christ, not all of us have an opportunity to be a prominent leader. Not all of us are going to be a senior leader of a church. But you know what? All of us have another opportunity. All of us have an opportunity to be a burden bearer in the life of another person. All of us have an opportunity to be an Aristarchus, where when someone's having a burden or having trouble, we can be there for them. Something to learn from Aristarchus. So you'll notice in verse 3, it says that they put in at Sidon. And and by the way, we have a map up here. We wanted to show you a little bit of the flow of all this. You might remember that that's the Mediterranean Sea in the middle there. And on the, the far right is where Israel is located. And then you look at the upper left-hand corner, and that's Italy. That's where they want to go, and they're going to go by way of sea. And it tells us in verse 4, as they started on that journey, that they sailed in the shelter of Cyprus. And you see the first island that is there on the right-hand side is Cyprus. And it says the winds were contrary. It really means the winds were coming out of the west, and they were headed basically west. And so they sailed behind the island, so they got less resistance there. And then eventually, if you go down to verse 5, it says that they uh, landed at, at, at a place called Myra, and, and there they, sh- they switched to a larger ship because they're going to go out in more open ocean, and it was a larger grain ship. And verses 6 and verse 7 and verse 8 talk about all of that. But then I want you to notice, um, as they're beginning to move along and sail along, um, it says in verse 9, 
When considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, and you say, well, what do you mean the voyage was now dangerous? And it goes on to say there that the fast uh, was already over. What's happening here? Well, the fast is referring to the Day of Atonement in, in, in Jewish practice, and the Day of Atonement would happen in early October. Why is that significant? Because travel in this area that you see on that map began to be very dangerous from mid-September on. Now they're in early October. In fact, travel in this area became virtually impossible by mid-November. So now it's late enough that there's potential danger. And then Paul makes a statement in verse 10. He says, Men, I perceive that the voyage ahead of us will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. And that, that verb here that's translated perceive is a, a verb that means to perceive by experience, to observe by experience. And you say, what? I mean, what does Paul know about traveling? By sea. Well, remember, he had three missionary journeys where he moved around. And, and three years before the events of Acts chapter 27, three years before this, he wrote his second letter to the Corinthians. And in the second letter to the Corinthians, written three years before these events, he says in that letter that he had personally been shipwrecked three times and that he'd spent a night and a day in the sea. This thing that's about to happen to him is going to be the fourth time it's happened to him. And so he had learned. He had been sea traveling enough to know the times of the years and the dangers and everything else. And he says, because of my experience, I am concerned that not only the ship might be lost, but we could all be killed. Well, what were you going to do? Well, the centurion, Julius, apparently listened to what Paul said, but was persuaded more by the pilot and the captain of the ship. You know, they said, hey, I think we can do this thing. I think we can get by. I think we can have an opportunity to get by without an incident happening. Well, then they put out from there, and they hoped to reach Phoenix, which was a harbor of Crete. If you look at that map on Crete in the far left part, you'll see Phoenix. They wanted to go 40 miles, and they thought maybe they could pull this off because it says in verse 13 that a moderate south wind came up. That would be like a summer breeze. And they think, hey, this is fine. This is great, man. The winds are just the right way. There's, remember, they didn't have the weather channel. They didn't know what might be coming. And so they make this run. And that leads us to where the storm attacks in verses 14 to 38. Notice verse 14. But after not very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind. It's the word... Uh, Tufanikos, in the original language, Tufanikos, we get the word typhoon from it. Suddenly, this typhoon hits them, and it goes on to say in verse 14 that it was called a urakilo. Now, now, that word urakilo is simply, in the original language, taking the word for north and taking the word for east and putting them together. That's what urakilo means. If you have an ESV or an NIV, it might say there was a northeasterner that hit them. Uh, having grown up back east, we call it a little bit differently. We call it a nor'easterner. 
Just drop the TH. It was that kind of, those kind of storms are horrid. They are horrid. And so the ship, verse 15, gets caught in it, and it couldn't face this heavy wind and this heavy storm. And so they let themselves be driven along. And, and by the time you get down to verse 17, they're worried about the ship coming apart in such a storm. So they, they, they added these what they call supporting cables. What it really means is, and I don't quite really know how they did this when they're in, in a ship, but they managed to bring ropes around the ship and, and tie multiple ropes around the ship. Remember, it's a wooden ship, and they want to help hold it together in the storm. And we notice it says there in verse 17, they began to fear that they might run aground on the shallows of Sirtis. If you look up at that map, you'll see in the bottom part of the map is really Africa, and you see Libya there, and that's where the shallows of Sirtis were. They were the sandbars of North Africa. They're wanting to go to Italy, but they're being driven south, and they don't really know where they are, and they think, we're going to hit the sandbars, and we're going to have a problem. So when you get to verse 18, they decide what we're going to do is we're going to just jettison the cargo. Every piece of cargo they had, they began to throw overboard. And then in verse 19, it says they threw the tackle overboard. What's that referring to? Well, it means the sail beam and the yard arm they threw overboard. They were hoping maybe it might drag down the ship a little bit by dragging that behind them in the water. Look at verse 20. It says that neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. It was totally black. It was just this black storm. They couldn't see the sun by daylight. They couldn't see the stars by night. And and you know what? That's the way they navigated. They didn't have GPS. They had to see the stars at night to know where they were. And they had no way of knowing. They're saying, where are we? We don't know. And they began to lose all hope. Look at verse 21. When they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, men, you ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night... An angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, man, Paul says, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on a certain island." Amazing to see what happens here. Now, in verse 27, it says, Then the 14th night came. Think about this. This has been going on for two weeks. They're caught up in this incredible storm. And it mentions they're in the Adriatic Sea. In those days, the Adriatic Sea, if you ever look at a map, encompassed what we now call the Ionian Sea. It was all called the Adriatic. And it says in verse 27, they begin to surmise that they're approaching land. Now, how do you think they did that? How do you think they were surmising they were approaching land? They began to hear the surf. If you've ever been around the ocean, you understand that. They began to hear the surf in the distance. They're 500 miles off course. 
And so in verse 28, they begin to take soundings. That's how did they do that? That's when they want to see the depth of the water. And they would, they would have a rope and it would have markings on the rope and they would put a weight at the bottom part of that rope and they would throw it overboard till it hit the bottom and then they would notice the marking on the rope. And they notice at one point they're, they're at 20 fathoms. That's 120 feet of water, 36 meters. Then suddenly they're at 15 fathoms, 90 feet, 27 meters, and it's getting shallower and shallower and shallower. And notice verse 20. 9 says, fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern from the rear of the boat and wished for daybreak. They said, well, throw four more anchors off. We hope one of them will just catch things and stop us from being smashed on the rocks. Now, in verse 30, the sailors step forward, and they have a plan. And their plan is, we're going to abandon ship. We don't care about everybody else on here. We're going to get off. And they had this little cover story that we, were going to, we want to lay some more anchors from the bow. But what they were really planning to do was to jump off ship and take whatever little lifeboats that there were. And in verse 31, Paul basically says, if they go, we won't make it. Apparently, God had told him that everybody needed to remain on board in order for them to be saved. Well, verses 33 to 36, basically, it was about to dawn, and Paul was encouraging them all to take some food. Today is the 14th day that you've been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Now, doesn't that sound a little surprising? But it shows you how rough the storm was. It shows you how despondent they were. Hey, let me ask you this question. Have you ever been involved? Maybe it's a situation where there's a little bit of an emergency or you had some intense hard work and you're just doing it and you're doing it and you're responding to it and suddenly then you stop and you sit and you say, I'm just exhausted. I haven't even eaten. This had been going on for two weeks. That's how severe it was. And it says that Paul was encouraging them. Interesting construction in the original language and indicates that he was doing this over and over again. I think he went one by one through the people on the ship and said, you got to eat. you got to eat. You need strength, Paul was thinking, for the swim that was ahead. In verse 34, he says, I encourage you to take some food, for not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. In the midst of all of this, I love what Paul does in verse 35. He took bread and he gave thanks to God in the presence of all and he broke it and began to eat. You know, even when this dire situation, what does Paul do? He, he takes time for table grace. And it's easy how we're so distracted with everything going on in our life, we don't take time consistently sometimes for that. They're in the midst of this. If you could ever figure this is a time when you don't need to pray and give thanks for your food, Paul does that. Verse thirty. Seven, all of us in the ship, it says, were 276 people, quite a number. Well, then the shipwreck occurs in verses 39 to 44. Look at verse 41. But striking a reef where the two seas met, they ran the vessel aground, and the prow, which is just another word for the bow, stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves." So the ship seems to be breaking apart. And so the soldiers in verse 42 said, you know what, here's what we need to do. We need to kill everybody, all the prisoners, we need to kill them all. 
Why would they say that? Well, for a Roman soldier, part of the military law was that if you allow a prisoner to escape, you can be executed for that. And they're thinking, I don't want to die. We'll just kill all these people. In verse 43, Julius, the centurion, says, no, 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 no. We're not going to do that. Instead, I want everyone here to jump overboard and get to land any way that you can. And in verse 44, they all end up safely to land. I don't know exactly how all that happened. Probably some of them were good swimmers and some of them not so good. Maybe they're hanging on to a piece of debris, but they all made it. And we, we learn from chapter 28 and verse 1 that they landed on an island called Malta. Now, having looked at all of that, I want to observe two important things. First one, how did Paul stand firm in the midst of this storm. This was a Lulu of a storm. Well, I believe there are four truths that Paul embraced, and they're very important. This is something we would write down because they will help us to ride out the storms in our own life. And I don't know about you, but I'm in the middle of one right now in my life, medically speaking, and some of you may not be in the middle of one now, but you will be in this next year. So these are Important things to remember. What did Paul embrace? Well, the first truth that he embraced, I believe, was the truth of God's presence. God's presence. Look back at verse 23. He said, that very night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me. God's presence in the midst of the storm gave strength and comfort to Paul. We see this over and over again in the book of Acts. In chapter 18, verse 10, the Lord said to Paul, I'm with you, Paul. Things have gotten rough, but I'm with you. In chapter 23, verse 11, um, the Lord stood at the side of Paul, it says there, and he said to Paul, take courage. My presence is with you, Paul. You know, we have the promise that is given to us in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5, where God says, I will never desert you nor ever forsake you, even if there's this incredible gargantuan storm that you're experiencing in your life. In other words, God says to us, because we know him, you will never be in the storm alone. You will never walk alone in the storm. And so that's the first truth that he embraced. And when we embrace the truth of God's presence, even though there's a big storm going on, it will give us strength and it will give us comfort. There's a second truth that Paul embraced, and that is this truth. We are God's people. We are God's people. You know, she says there in verse 23, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, to whom I belong. You know, in John chapter 10, Jesus says in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And when we find ourselves in the midst of a storm and we remember the truth that we are God's people, guess what? That gives us encouragement and that gives us confidence. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, Peter says to us, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and here it comes, a people for God's own possession. We're his people. 
It says in Romans 8, 31, God is, what does it say? For us. He's not going to forget about us. We're his people. We're his special possession. And so we need to remember that when we face a storm in our life, that we are God's people. That will give us encouragement and confidence. He's not going to forget us. He's not going to abandon us. He's going to be with us. We're his people. The third truth that Paul embraced is the truth that we are called to serve the Lord and others. You know, when you find yourself in this gargantuan storm in your life, when we remember that we're called to serve the Lord and others, it will give us a sense of purpose, even in the storm, and a sense of privilege, even in the storm. Again, back to verse 23, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. You look at the actions of Paul during this storm and during all these things that are happening on this ship, and what is he doing? He's praying for others. He is serving food to the other prisoners and crew, encouraging them to take the nourishment that they need. That's an important thing to remember in the middle of a storm. You know, in Philippians 2.4, it says, do not look out merely for your own personal interests. We have to do that in life, but also for the interests of others. So even in the storm, where's Paul's mind? Not just on himself and what he's experiencing. He is thinking about how I'm called to serve the Lord and others. Titus chapter 3 says that we're to be careful to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs. And one of the most rewarding things that we can do when we're in the middle of a big storm that will give us purpose in that storm is to look around for other people's needs that we can meet even when we're in the storm. A fourth thing that Paul embraced, a truth that he embraced, was confidence in God's promises. We see that again in these verses. He says, uh, an angel of the Lord, verse 23, to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me. And what was he saying? Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. Behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men. He's replying now to the people on the ship. For I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. Now, I suspicion some of you here are a lot like me. And here's what my natural flesh reaction is when a storm comes into my life. I want explanations. You ever been like that? I want to know, why is this happening to me? You know, how long is this going to be happening to me? And sometimes I can lose sight of the fact that he's given me certain promises even though I don't understand what's going on. J.B. Phillips has a great quote that I really like that I think is a reflection of the way we tend to be. He says, there is an apparent arbitrariness about the working of the Holy Spirit, which is singularly exasperating to the tidy-minded. You know, what he's saying is, you know, I have a tidy mind. I like everything in order. I want to understand everything. And there's this seemingly arbitrariness. Why did this storm come up? Why is this happening? You know, and yet it's just the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
And, and rather than trying to get all the explanations for why is this happening, how long is this happening, I don't know, this seems a little more difficult than I should have received. Rather than looking for explanations when the storm comes, we need to look to his promises. That's what Paul did. Promises like Romans 8, 28. He works all things together for good to those who love God. You see, the beat just goes on, and the storms will keep coming. A number of years ago, Andre Crouch wrote a great song that I, I really love the words of. It's called Through It All. I want to read you uh, some of the lyrics of that song. He says, I had many tears and sorrows. I've had questions for tomorrow. There have been times I didn't know right from wrong. But in every situation, God gave blessed consolation that my trials come to only make me strong. I've been to lots of places. I've seen a lot of faces. There have been times I felt so all alone. But in my lonely hours, yes, those precious lonely hours, Jesus let me know that I was his own. I thank God for the mountains and I thank him for the valleys. I thank him for the storms he brought me through. For if I've never had a problem, I wouldn't know that he could solve them. I'd never know what faith in God could do. Through it all, through it all, oh, I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. Through it all, through it all, I've learned to depend upon his word. So as Paul is experiencing this great storm in his life, there's four truths that he really embraces. The truth of God's presence, the truth that we are God's people, his very precious possession, that we are called to serve the Lord and others and confidence in God's promises. Now, here's the second thing I want to note about this. When we are in a storm, now follow me here for a moment, and when we are embracing the truth about God's presence, we're never alone, when we are embracing the truth that we are God's people, when we're embracing the truth that we're called to serve the Lord and others, when we're embracing the truth of confidence in God's promises, guess what? Other people notice that. Other people notice that. And we see that in Paul's life here. You know, he meets this guy, Julius, this centurion, and he's noticing things in Paul's life. In chapter 27, verse 3, he actually allows Paul to leave the ship for a little while to go see some of his friends when they're in port. In chapter 10, when there's this controversy, should we sail or should we not sail, he actually allows this prisoner, Paul, to give his opinion. In verses 21 and following, he allows Paul to speak to the 276 people who are on board. And then in verse 43, when the soldiers say, we want to kill everybody, he goes, no, 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 we're not going to do that at all. Now, now why is Julius responding that way? Because he had been watching Paul. And here's what I want you to think about in the year ahead. When a storm comes in your life, think about maybe there's a Julius that God wants you to influence as they watch you just embracing those truths about God. So the first thing we've looked at today is Paul's shipwreck experience. 
And that's taken us most of our time, but I, I want us not to miss the, the final thing we want to look at, and that is Paul sharing the gospel in chapter 28, verses 23 and 24. So you might flip over there. Look at verse 23. When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. Now, as a preacher, when I look at those verses, I can't tell you how excited I am by the last phrase of verse 23. He was doing this with people, teaching them about the gospel and about the Bible from morning to evening. You know, we're talking about having a new schedule beginning next week. I, how about if we just did it from morning to evening, all right? We would all be here from morning to evening, begin, beginning, yeah, okay, I don't see a lot of excitement there. But it is in Scripture, right? But what I really want you to notice is not so much that. I want you to notice the three elements that he brings in sharing the gospel in an effective way. They're, it's built around three verbs that are here. It could be easy to miss them. Notice the first thing it says he did, he did in verse 23 is he was explaining to them. Interesting word. That verb means to lay out before someone in orderly sequence. And that's what he did with the gospel message. And that's what you and I need to do with the gospel message. We need to be able to lay it out clearly in an orderly sequence. There's different ways that you can do that. Uh, you could choose the bad news, good news approach. You know, the bad news is we've all sinned. The bad news is that we have death that comes to us. The good news is that Jesus didn't sin, that Jesus died for us, and Jesus rose again from the dead. But it's important that we're able to lay the gospel out in an orderly sequence. Maybe you do it with the, the thrust that mankind has a problem and you're developing, again, sin and death that comes from it, and God has the solution. Or maybe you take people that you want to explain the gospel to and you take them on the Roman road. You start out in Romans 3.23. You take them to Romans 6.23. You take them to Romans 5.8. You take them to Romans 10.9 and 10. But he was explaining this to them, laying it out in orderly sequence. And if we're going to be effective in sharing the gospel as a church family, we need to be able to do that, lay it out in an orderly sequence. That's the first thing that he did. Second thing he did Second verb is he was testifying, verse 23, to them. He was laying out the orderly sequence of the gospel message, but he was also then testifying. He was sharing how this had impacted his life. He was testifying. We would put it this way. He was sharing his story. You say, how do we effectively communicate the gospel to people? We begin by explaining it to them, laying it out in orderly sequence, and then we share how that has impacted our life. We tell our story. And then the third thing it says that he did in verse 23 is that he was persuading them. He was calling for a response. You know, this is more than just some intellectual exercise or exchange of spiritual information. There was an appeal that he was making, an appeal to them to make an eternal decision that would have ramifications in this life and also in the next life. So how do we effectively share the gospel? We follow his pattern. We explain it to them in an orderly fashion. We testify, we share our story, and then we persuade them. We ask for a response. And that is a great pattern. Great pattern. 
Now, if you follow that great pattern, what will happen? Verse 24 tells us what will happen. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. Hey, even when we're doing it right, biblically, there's going to be mixed reactions. And sometimes what happens to us is we, we share the gospel with people, and then we sort of get the pushback, the resistance, and we say, you know what, I think I'll just kind of back off right there. But no, we need to still be explaining, still be testifying, still be persuading, and just remember there's going to be mixed reactions to all of those things. What a great pattern for us here at Wildwood. Now again, what's so interesting about the book of Acts is there is no ending, there is no conclusion. Why is that? The beat goes on. The beat goes on. Paul eventually left the scene and the beat goes on. Uh, there have been multiple generations, and the beat goes on. One day, Bruce will be gone, and the beat will go on. Mark will be gone, and the beat will go on. You will be gone, and the beat will go on. But here's the cool part about all this. The chapters of this book are still being written. You and I are still adding to the story. In fact, Pastor Mark is going to take us through a series uh, the rest of January entitled Share, where we're going to learn a little bit more practically of how we can be involved in adding to the story of the book of Acts. And this is exciting to me because this story that we can still add chapters to is a story that we're going to read about one day in heaven. And I want you to have an integral part in all of that as the story is read. And you can see how God used you in that process. The beat goes on. So exciting. Let's pray together. Father, we just want to thank you again for the word of God, and we thank you for everything that is in here. We thank you for the new year that we have before us, the new chapter that is being written. And Lord, we realize that there are storms ahead for all of us. May we remember how Paul handled this and the truths that he embraced. And when we even think about being able to continue to share the gospel as has been done over the generations, we can often feel inadequate for that. The truth of the matter is that we aren't adequate in and of ourselves. We need you. We need your grace. We need you when temptation will come our way. We need you to guide our heart each and every day, every week, every month, for this year and the years to come. We thank you that you're always going to be there for us, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.